As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So we started this discussion of Parashat Vayetzeh. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the role of Rashi as a commentator and as how we see it. It's, it is important to, to speak about that uh, because a lot of people bring up this point. They say that Rashi is Peshat. Rashi is, when Peshat, and the, with the word Peshat, they understand that it means the literal or the simplest meaning of the text. But that's not what Rashi had in mind. First of all, the... Uh, um, in in the um, in the time of the Mishnah and the Talmud, the way they used the term pshat came from the uh, from the word pashat in Hebrew, which means to open a scroll. So, to open a scroll, when you open it, you see the full picture. So the idea was that uh, pshat is something that works in context, unlike derash, which is taking the when drash when not with halakha but with non halakha material you pluck the word out of its original context and you're not committed to the full picture so you can have a full midrashic interpretation but as long as it's consistent with the whole text that will be called pishat because you have covered the whole uh the whole unit and it's applicable so that was in the time of the of uh of the uh, of the Mishnah and the Talmud, by the time of Rashi, it already changed a little bit, and they look at Pshat as as a more direct explanation. And the uh, Rashi Rashi uses a lot of midrashim in his commentary. Yes, yes, it's uh, it's. Uh, I actually once made an estimate, and then I checked it. Uh, my estimate was that uh, in uh, in Rashi's commentary on Bereshit, eighty five percent, eighty five percent is midrash. That was my uh, my assessment, and then what I did was I copied all in order to check whether it's true or not. I copied all of the text of Rashi, and uh, and started highlighting, the copying and pasting into three different columns. So one column was midrash, the other column was technical explanations that are, I would not call commentary, like names of people or grammatical commentary. Um, etc. etc. That was the second uh, the second category, and the third category was original commentary by by Rashi, and I was correct. It was eighty five percent of Rashi's commentary is midrash. Another about five percent is technical matters, a lot of grammar and some geography, and ten percent is Rashi's original commentary, and still. Rashi's, if you read Rashi in the original language, in the Hebrew, uh, 
You realize that Rashi's commentary is brilliant because what he manages to do is to weave all these different commentaries into something which is read in a very, very fluid manner, very, uh, very direct. You could, you could hear Rashi's voice. You could hear how he thinks about his community and how to uh, not only make the text accessible to them, but also to answer some theological questions that they had in terms of Christianity versus Judaism, exile, diaspora, the Crusades, all this. Uh, but Rashi himself said, if I had time, I would write a new commentary every day. He did, he, I think that if Rashi would have come back to life today and would see how people study his commentary and and treat every word as if it was given to Rale Moshe Misinah, he would become very, very upset. That's not that's not what he intended. And I actually think that uh, Rashi wrote the his commentary in uh, in something which would be uh, tantamount to one sitting. Not that he said... And, and wrote it all in one night, but probably in a burst of creativity, he wrote it in maybe three months, maybe six months, but not over years, uh, because, and I'm saying that, because it has this feeling of something which is very organic, not something that was polished again and again and again, and in many cases, Rashi quotes the Midrash not in its original place, in many other cases, he, I mean, it's the same Midrash, but not where it was written, in other cases, he quotes a different Midrash, um, than the original that was written on the on the text, and he sometimes brings later midrashim that was written in his age by Rabbi Shimon Adarshan and Rabbi Moshe Adarshan, <coughs> and that shows that he uh, studies studied those uh, texts constantly, and already had a picture of what uh, of of how he understands them. So when he wrote when he wrote it, not necessarily he opened the book to see. Uh, what the original midrash was, but he just from his memory he crafted the midrash and f- and fitted it into the uh, uh, into the text. Um, and then another thing that is important to remember in Rashi's commentary, and that's something that one of the great scholars of Rashi uh, in our generation, Professor El El Azar Twito, pointed out, is that uh, in some places Rashi would say there are many midrashic interpretation, but I don't yes. want to use them. He says that when the Midrashic interpretation can support the Christian interpretation, so he's trying to keep away from it. Yeah, and I also, I did the research and saw that Rashi mentions that statement, there are many Midrashim and I only want to use the Pshat, in about 15 places in, in his commentary to Bereshit, which means when he tells you in these 15 places, I only want to use the Pshat and not the Midrash, it means that anywhere else he does use the midrash. So Rashi is is uh, very heavy on the midrashim. He uses them a lot, and uh, we should really uh, uh, look at different commentaries. Yeah. My, I believe that the, uh, the the best commentator of the homash is is yourself. You go and you read the homash thoroughly. You have to know Tanakh thoroughly. Then, if you don't read the Hebrew, you compare different translations. You ask yourself, why is there a deviation between this translation and another that shows this is a problem in the original text? And you start digging into it. Then you open the commentaries. The commentaries come after your uh, your first uh, journey and, and the analysis of the text. So, um, And that is why I'm working now on a new commentary and a new, uh, uh, a new translation of the Torah. I have accomplished... Yeah, I'm doing it now. I've... I've yeah, I'm finished the uh, Parashat uh, Bereshit.
and uh, I hope to make it into a book that will cover the Humash, but it will take a while. So I began, I began reading the, um, the literature you sent me that I asked. Yeah. Um, it, it blew my mind. We spoke a little bit about Rashi. We could uh, we could look at the uh, um, at the parasha. In um, this is we are in chapter twenty eight, Parashat Vayitze. Yaakov leaves Be'er Sheva, goes to Haran. Uh, he sleeps. It says Vayivgaba Makom. He came to this place and he slept there. Um, <coughs> the commentators following the midrash says that the Makom was the temple. This is consistent with the um, methodology of the midrash to try to uh, identify everything to leave to not leave any stone unturned. That was a uh, a practice that the rabbis in the time when the midrash started to flourish. In the at the turn of the, like the first millennium and the first and second centuries, uh, the rabbis tried to uh, identify places, n- people. Whenever it says, uh, whenever the Torah refers to an anonymous person, like the refugee, the man, the messenger, the 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 rabbis give that person a name. Whenever a place is mentioned, they try to identify that place to create a connection, because they wanted to uh, uh, to give a greater depth to the stories of the Torah, and part of it is because they were competing with the uh, the the Greek uh, storytellers the, through the Greek theater, through the tragedies, the comedies, that were very, very detailed. And in contrast, the stories of the Torah are very succinct, they're very um, laconic, they don't give us much detail. So the and people came and they asked, okay, why uh, why don't we know more about this? Uh, yes, Shayna, you have a question? Yeah, just quickly on that term, Vayivgaba Makom. Yes. Is that a normal usage for staying there? Uh, no, okay, so Vayivga, uh, in, 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 uh, in modern Hebrew, Yifgoa has only one meaning, and that is to cause, to hurt, to cause harm. Uh, but actually in Tanakh, uh, it's never, uh, it never means to harm. It means either to, to meet someone, uh, or, uh, or to pray, it says al tifga baadi. So, uh, but it, it has the the sense of of uh, of the meeting of two uh, of two things. It is related to the word pagash, which is uh, to meet. So vayivga is really to meet to get to to get to a place. Um, but but later on it got the meaning of lifgoa to meet in a in a violent way. But this is not the biblical uh, not the biblical meaning. So he gets to the place and he sleeps there and he takes the from of the stones and he puts around his head and he goes to sleep. Later on, the Torah will talk in verse eighteen about the, the stone that he put under his head. And here's the famous midrash. It was it says many stones. Then one stone. It means that all the stones became one. Where the pshat is obvious. He took many stones and he uh, put around him, and he put his head on only one stone. You can't rest your head on one more than one. So he that took that particular stone and made it into a monument and uh, poured oil on it. So he has this dream with the letter. Uh, he's the uh, the first one uh, that has a dream. Being previously, <clears throat> God talks to Avimelech b'halom alayla. But that's more of a prophecy. But here is a visual, uh, it's a visual dream with no interpretation. So the interpretation is given to us. We see a letter and the angels going up and down. Uh, what is the meaning of the dream? 
we don't know, it's not in the Torah, but God uh, stands there and says, I I am Hashem, the God of your father, Avraham, Yitzhak, I will give you the land, you will inherit the land. It's basically the Birkat Avraham. It's the Bracha of Avraham. So we can understand that as a prophecy, and also as a the inner struggle in Yaakov's soul, he always asks himself whether what he did with Isav was correct or not. And the... Uh, the flip side, the other side, the other part of that of that dream would be the struggle that we'll have with the uh, with the man when he comes back from uh, Haran and he crosses the Abok, <clears throat> and the man struggles with him all night. That is his inner struggle, asking himself whether he did right in taking the Bechorah from Esav or not. So uh, the letter going from uh, earth to heaven can have different meanings. Uh, could be the journey that we we have in life and the aspiration which is a, to, to do something which is greater than ourselves with some di- divine direction uh, could also uh, the malachim, the messengers of God which go up and down could symbolize the, uh, the changing uh, situations in one's life you're, you're up or down uh, in any case the uh, it's a it's a very powerful uh, uh, image. Like if you say Jacob's letter, everybody knows it in any culture. Almost uh, this has became a, a global uh, globally recognized image of the letter of Yaakov. But it really is the first uh, dream that is mentioned in the Torah. Um, and Yaakov, I think it it, it fits to um, to see that as uh, Yaakov is being shaken. This whole situation, whatever happened to him, really shook him up because he was. Uh, leading a quiet, simple life, and with his mother's intervention, he now gets into this situation that he asks himself, where am I going from here? So he wants to feel that he's going upwards, going going towards a better place, and Hashem confers them that for him. Uh, what is really surprising is that Yaakov says, that when Yaakov wakes up, He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. So, that casts a uh, uh, certain doubt on uh, on Yaakov's uh, understanding of uh, of the presence of God, uh, and he says lo yadati. And then what further complicates that is that he immediately says Manuram Elohim This must be the house of Elohim, and that is uh, the gate of heaven. So. <clears throat> um, how do we understand that? That Yaakov says, uh, "I didn't know that Hashem exists in this place." It could be that, um, despite the knowledge and the understanding of monotheism, and that God is the creator of the world and is accessible wherever you are, um, Yaakov was still thinking in terms of sacred places. There are certain places that are more conducive for communicating with God, and. Um, it 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 really raises a question of uh, um, how much communication was between him and Yitzhak, between Yitzhak and Abraham. Maybe that understanding that you could you could uh, turn to God whatever wherever you are was not uh, was not communicated correctly to Yaakov, and he felt uh, that uh, that you could only uh, approach God from certain places. So, and because even after uh, his recognition that Hashem is there, he says, Enzeki im bet Elohim, 
Vezeh Shara Hashem. That must be a unique place. Um, the switch between Hashem and Elokim could also, I think, show the confusion in Yaakov's soul, because as uh, uh, we mentioned in the discussion of Bereshit and also in the written material, the name of Havaya Yud Kevavke, that is we read as Adonai, uh, is considered Midat Rahamim. So, mainly in the Kabbalistic writings uh, in the in medieval times, but it has roots in the in uh, rabbinic literature, and it makes sense because Shem Havaya is a combination of the three uh, of the three uh, tenses of the word to be Haya, Hoveve, Yie. So it's more a verb than a noun. It's not a name as much as it is a verb. Is it's as if we say that to be be was will be spoke to uh, spoke to Yaakov. So that that name of the constant fluid havaya of or existence of God reflects the rahamim because it's not rigid. It's rather something that changes with one's situation in life. But Elohim is also a synonym for judges. So Elohim represent rigor uh, and rigorous justice. <clears throat> so for Yaakov to speak at once of the presence of Havaya and the presence of Elohim is to show the confusion in his soul, in his mind, asking what I did, was it the right thing in terms of justice to take the bracha from my brother? What I did, was it because I felt compassion for my mother because that's what she wanted or I wanted to continue continue my father's uh, way? So he's struggling between Hashem and Elohim. He... Uh, he makes this uh, uh, this matzeva, this monument, calls the place Betel, and then uh, the neder that he says is is as follows. Also uh, very perplexing. It says, "If Hashem, if Elokim will be with me and will guard me on the way in which I walk, and will give me bread to eat and garments to wear, and I will return to the house of my father, Hashem will be my Elohim." So, what what happens here? could say that that is a continuation of this debate within Yaakov's soul. The The ideal situation for a person is to have Elohim as the guiding line. Why? Because if Elohim is Midat Adin, is the rigorous uh, justice, it could only function <clears throat> in a place or with a person who makes no errors. That is why the first world of Bereshit is... Uh, created under the name of Elohim and the second world is created under Hashem Elohim the combination of mercy and and justice because a perfect world only a perfect world could be run with Midat Adin in an imperfect world where there's sin when there's a uh, deception the name of Elohim will destroy everything so when Yaakov says Ve'aya Hashem Elohim he says I want to uh, elevate myself from a situation from a status where I need to communicate with Shem Havaya, which is mercy, because I I am not I am imperfect. I want to be, I want to be able to, uh, to be guided or be to be to communicate with Elohim. So uh, Yaakov continues his journey. He goes to Haran, and uh, we don't know the story. This is uh, in chapter. Wait, let's get the chapter. It's still in chapter twenty nine. Uh, Yaakov gets to Haran, and. Uh, and he sees the flocks around the well. I mentioned last time that the fact that Yaakov was able to move 
the stone in one fell swoop, he just removes it, shows it was a very strong man, not the way we usually imagine Yaakov, you know, as a uh, as a nebech, as this uh, as a, this weakling. He was a strong man. He could have he could have uh, defended himself against Esav. Um Interesting dialogue between Yaakov and the shepherds. Yaakov tries to strike a conversation. He says, "My brothers, where are you from?" They say, "Haran." Do you know Lavan ben Nahor? We know. Hashalom lo. Is he okay? They say shalom. Like they're trying to avoid him. They don't want to try to talk to him. He's, an, he's, an, he's a foreigner. Uh, then, uh, but then Rachel comes. He sees her. He kisses her. Uh, this is something also that some commentators struggle with. How did he kiss her? It's very simple. They're cousins. They're, uh, they, he shows her affection. And uh, Lavan brings him in. Uh, in verse 14, after Lavan is being told everything, Lavan says, you are uh, bone, my bone and flesh, and you can just live with me. This, I think, here the Midrash is pretty correct. The Midrash says, Lavan ran out to him, kissed and hugged him, because he thought maybe he brings the same wealth and riches as the uh, the servant brought with him, but there's nothing. He says, okay, but you're my family, so sit with me. After a month, Lavan tells Yaakov, hinam. Just uh, so here you see the translation of the J. This is the old JPS. Uh, because you are my brother, should you therefore serve me from nothing? Tell me what shall the, your wages be. Uh, but that's not what the Lavan tells Yaakov. He doesn't say you are my brother. He says you are not my brother. Hinam. Are you my brother to work for nothing? Tell me what should I pay you. Right, and that's a little surprising because we think of yeah, of Lavan as a uh, as a crook, right? As someone who is deceitful. So why is he offering Yaakov wages when Yaakov does not ask for it? The answer is that uh, Lavan tells Yaakov, "You are not part of the family." Originally, he said, "You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh," right? <clears throat> but if Yaakov stays for too long, and he works as a family member, that also makes him an heir. And he will inherit Lavan when Lavan dies. Lavan says, I'd rather pay you than make you a partner in my business. So Lavan, by paying Yaakov, makes him an employee rather than a partner. Because the the way society was structured back then, all working hands of the family are working not for pay, but for the right to inherit the father. So now Lavan says, you cannot be part of that. You... Uh, I will pay you. So, Lavan has two daughters, and like I mentioned last time, I believe that they were identical twins, only that Leah, as it says here in verse 17, she had weak eyes. It's very probable that she contracted some kind of a disease at an older age, uh, and uh, and therefore became, she, she looked different. And, uh, if, even in a way that really was very uh, stressful to her, because people would see her and Rahel from afar, they were both beautiful, but when they come near, they look her in the eye, and they don't feel so comfortable. So uh, we have to we have to think, really put ourselves in Le'a's place, um, and think uh, how how desperate she was if she was willing to trick her wife, uh, her sister, sorry, and uh, her husband, her future husband, by uh, 
by pretending to be her sister. She, she knew that she's going to be really, uh, uh, you know, Yaakov is not going to be happy with that, right? Yet she did it. So uh, I want to show you, I want to share with you at this moment a, a beautiful poem written by, uh, um, I think it's Jonathan Geffen, who was the, uh, Tzvika Pik actually wrote that, an Israeli singer. Um, and did he write it? One second. No, Ehud Mano. Ehud Mano is a is a um, was a very prolific uh, Israeli songwriter, and um, here's the here are the words I read in Hebrew and and uh, translate. Just imagine what is happening, what is going through Eliezer's uh, head. He says, "Etoto aboker lo eshkar, kshetaman trosher betoch hakar, or hashemesh al haol nach." It says, I will never forget this morning when you buried your head in the pillow. The sunlight was dancing on the tent and I was still uh, feeling the, uh, the, the, the celebration of last night, the wine. And then he goes on to say, And then I whispered her name into your ear you took my hand with your cold hand and one uh, boiling tear fell into my hands so the uh, the the poet here captured really the uh, the the situation in in uh, in uh, Yaakov's tent can you imagine the the day after the wedding when he wakes up and he finds out it's not his uh, it's not Rachel how 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 upset he was, uh, what and what would she say? And she didn't. She never said, "Okay, you know what? My father cheated you. I I wasn't part of it. He forced me. Let's get divorced." No, she wanted him to be her husband. So that can explain the situation. But uh, it's also the the clear way of the Torah to say that what Yaakov did by taking the baracha from his father was not the right thing because here he is punished right away in the same exact way that he deceived his father. He was one of twins who pretended to be his twin and took something that doesn't belong to him. And here Leah, who is a twin, takes uh, takes him not in a correct manner. Now, the Torah also emphasizes that by by changing the language. In verse 16, it says, The, the, the way the two, uh, the two daughters are referred to is One is older, one is younger. But when uh, Yaakov finds out that uh, his wife is Leah and not Rachel, Lavan says, We don't do it here. Now she comments on that. Here we don't do it. We're not like you. So he teases him. He, uh, he rebukes him for what he did. We don't do what you did. What did you do? To give the second born before the first born. So... In verse 16, it's Gdola Uktana, but in verse 26, Tzerira Ubechira. Just like the names of Yaakov and Isav, Yaakov was the Tzair, right? The, the, the prophecy said, Verab Yaavod Tzair, and Isav was the Bechor. <coughs> so when Lavan says, I cannot do that, I cannot let you have the Tzerira before the firstborn, he directly rebukes Yaakov for taking the right of the firstborn. So, 
<coughs> this is where we see that the Torah tells us that Yaakov started paying for what he did to Isav. So Yaakov uh, works for seven more years, and then, uh, but he gets Rachel after the after seven days. So within seven days, he's married to two wives, and uh, here we have to point out that the Torah is not, a favor, not in favor of bigamy. <coughs> Anyone in the Torah or the Tanakh who practice bigamy or polygamy suffered. Maybe we mentioned it last time as well. Um, Tavle'ah has, in this chapter, <coughs> four sons, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda. And the interesting thing is that none of the first three sons became a leader. Shimon and Levi were actually almost excommunicated in the Baruch of Yaakov. Yaakov says they are aggressive, they are violent. I don't want to have any share with them. Levi becomes later on the spiritual leader, but not the political leader. Shimon completely disappears. Reuven tries to assume leadership several times, but always fails. Um, he has actually three failures. <clears throat> One, when um, his uh, uh, when Rachel passes away, Reuven sleeps with Bilha in order to uh, to claim that he is the successor, and Yaakov gets very upset with that. The second time, Reuven tries to save Yosef by telling his brothers to throw him into the pit instead of killing him, but his uh, his plan fails. Instead of saving ya- Yosef, Yosef is being sold away and they don't know where he is. The third time, Reuven tries to convince Yaakov to send uh, Binyamin with him to Egypt and Reuven, and Yaakov refuses. It's only Yehuda who manages to convince him. So really we, we should ask the question, what was, uh, what was it in Yehuda that made him the leader and made him bypass the three older boys? So, any ideas? Any suggestions? And you try to correct it later on? Yeah, so you're right. No, so Yehuda later on shows this courage. He's willing to stand up and, and, and confess. Like the rabbi said, Yehuda is the one who gave Hodaya. is the one who, who confessed for his sins. But that is still the question. Why did Yehuda have that strength and not other brothers? What, where did he take it from? So I think that I think that um, here we have a very uh, important lesson that the Torah teaches us about the atmosphere that parents create in the household, even indirectly. There's a, there's a subliminal message that we transmit to our children. And, you know, you would hear parents sitting with their children in the company of others, and the children would say something, and everybody would laugh, or everybody would be shocked, and the parents would say, I don't know where they got this from. But <clears throat> if you really pay attention, you see that they got it from the from, from the parents. But in a subliminal way. Yes, Shana. Well, I think he was, the, he was the son of the favorite, so that gave him confidence also to be a leader. Yeah, but Reuven, Shimon, and Levi are also the sons of the favorite. So how come he bypassed them? Ah, that's true. Yeah. So so I think, look what, what happens here. Let's look at the names that Leah gives her children. Reuven, 
Why does he call Reuven Reuven? Ki ra'a Adonai be'onyi, ki a'ata ya'avani ishi. Hashem looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. So when she looks at Reuven, she doesn't see Reuven as her son, per se, but rather as a tool to acquire Yaakov's love. She focuses on herself and her misery, which she, she was miserable. She did live a difficult life, but she says, I am so miserable, nobody loves me, but now I have Reuven, my husband will love me. Okay, she's pregnant again. Verse 33, she says, Hashem heard that I am hated, and He gave me another one. So, it seems that what she did with Reuven, she hoped that Yaakov would love her because of her son, didn't work out. And Yaakov, she feels that Yaakov hates her. So when Shimon is born, she says, oh, now my husband will stop hating me. Again, she looks at Shimon as a tool to redeem her from her misery. She gives birth again. She says, Maybe now my husband will walk with me. She actually wants him to walk with her. She feels alone. Maybe they do walk together, but she doesn't feel that he's with her. right? And why would he walk with her now? Because she has three children. And they didn't have strollers where you could fit three children at the time. One at the lower level, one on the upper level, and one on the little uh, you know, platform where they could stand. So if you have three children, you hold two, and your husband would hold one. So she says, literally, my husband will have to walk with me. <clears throat> so her focus on the three first children is on herself. I'm lonely, I'm miserable, I'm hated, maybe the children will change it. And she communicates to the children. She doesn't communicate a sense of self-confidence and self-esteem. But then, when Yehuda is born... She says, She says, this time I will praise Hashem. She sort of was able, maybe only for that moment, maybe later on with the other children it didn't happen, but she was able to to get beyond that feeling of misery, that, that uh, focus on the self, and say, you know what, I have to be happy. Hashem gave me that child, let me praise Hashem for that. I'm not going to care whether my husband will be with me, whether he's going to be with Rachel. I am just happy that I have a child. And that is the that is the sense that Yehuda got from her. He felt that he's the son of a woman who respects herself, who feels dignity in what she has, and she doesn't have uh, to rely on him to get... Uh, to get the love of Yaakov. So I think that is why Yehuda later on grew up to be the leader. And it could have been only for a very short period, but still it affected him. It shows us how, how important it is for us as parents to show confidence and self-esteem in, in ourselves and to convey to our children, but to our children also to say, we believe in you, we praise you, we trust you, uh, Never, never come down at at, at children with uh, with strong strong rebuke that leaves them nowhere to go, or to uh, not be appreciative of what of what they did and say, oh, that's not enough. You don't have to say that it's that that halfway is enough, but to say what you did so far is beautiful and you could do more. Um, so we see that from uh, uh, the 
the way the Torah describes the names of uh, the children of uh, of Leah, and we go to chapter thirty, and here we see a uh, another very important lesson in communication. Here, Rachel realized that she has no children. She became jealous, and she told Yaakov, "Give me children, or else I'll die." And Yaakov's anger was kindled against Rachel. He got very angry. And he says, Am I God? God prevented you from having children. And she says, No, I didn't mean that. I, If I want to have children, I could have it through a surrogate mother, Bilha, what was a common practice back then. But what is happening here between Yaakov and Rachel? What happens is, that Yaakov misunderstands Rachel. She comes to him asking for empathy. She already had a solution in mind. She didn't ask him for a solution. She just wanted him to empathize. Just wanted him to say, I understand you, I feel you, I love you. What can I do? I, it's not in my hands, but I really, uh, I really understand how you feel. Instead, he says, it's your problem. That's what she hears. God prevented you from having children. And she hears the emphasis on the you. God prevented you from having children. Well, she says that. God prevented you from having children. I have children. You don't have children. So she becomes she be, she is now uh, uh, under attack. She feels that not only Yaakov does not understand her, he blames her for not having children because he has children from another wife. Why was Yaakov so upset? Yaakov loved Rachel dearly, but he sort of misunderstood her at that time. He thought that she's asking for a solution, and that's a common problem for men. We always look for a solution, and. If we don't know the solution, we get frustrated. We try to hide the fact that we don't we don't know the answer, and that's why we don't like to ask for directions. Um, we don't want to be exposed as weak. So for Yaakov to be told, give me children, and he thinks, how can I do that? I can never give her children. So he's frustrated and gets upset. So that is a classic example of miscommunication between, between spouses. Uh, the wife, Rachel, wants... Uh, Compassion wants empathy. Yaakov thinks that she wants a solution and this friction. What happens as a result of that friction? We'll see soon. One second. Shana, you have a question? Well, it just sounds familiar with uh, the story with Penina and Hannah as well. Right. <clears throat> it's also with Penina and Hannah. Not, not to the same extent as Yaakov because Elkanah doesn't get upset. Elkanah tries to, uh, to comfort uh, Hannah, but it doesn't. It doesn't really speak to her. He says, "Why do you? You don't have to cry. You don't have to be sad. I, you have me. I'm better than ten children." Uh, a woman doesn't want to hear the man saying, "You don't have to cry." The opposite. She, but but the th- the fact is that men are scared by uh, by seeing their wife, their wives, you know, their spouse crying. I don't know what to do. I have no solution for that. So stop crying. Don't worry. Everything will be okay. That's not always what people want to hear. They want to hear, it's okay to cry. I understand why you're crying. Even let's cry together. I'm exaggerating, but you know, to each situation, it's own. There's a beautiful midrash in uh, in the beginning of Echar uh, Abati, where the angel comes to to Hashem, Metatron, uh, like the Sarapnim, comes to God who's crying for the destruction of the temple, and says, why are you crying? You shouldn't cry. Let me cry for you. 
As if to say, and that's very similar to that situation where a husband says, don't worry, I'll, let me take the word, let me take the concerns on my shoulders. And then God answers, if you don't let me cry, I will go into hiding in a place where you cannot reach, and I'll cry there. Um, and he quotes a pasuk, Even if you cannot hear it, my soul cries in hiding. And that is also something that could happen to a couple where the husband would say, don't cry, don't be concerned, don't be worried. And the the his wife would wear this mask and pretend not to worry, but really in hiding, she will, and it will consume her and it will not be healthy. Um, Rashi comments here, <coughs> based on the Midrash, that Yaakov was punished for that. Rashi says, Is this a way to answer a woman in distress? And the punishment was, many, many years later, the brothers came and stood in front of Yosef and begged him to save, to, to spare their lives. And Yosef answers with the same exact words. And he says, Am I God? I cannot punish you. The Midrash sees a connection here. It says, Because Yaakov misspoke with Rachel, that was the beginning of the sibling rivalry that later on brought the brothers to stand before Yosef the way they did. So with those uh, few pesukim, the names of the children of, of Leah, and the discussion between Rachel and Yaakov, the Torah teaches us really very deep uh, educational lessons. May we be able to take them to heart, to communicate correctly with our children, with our spouses, with our friends. And uh, as we read the parasha, share these lessons with others. And uh, may we have a beautiful Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom to all. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.